Welcome to the Decades of Strength podcast. We are Kim, Marcy, and Katie. We are three women on one mission. We are obsessed with empowering women to gain confidence, build strength, and ditch feelings of unworthiness. So grab your chair, come sit at our table, and let's talk. back everyone to the Decades of Strength podcast. I'm Katie Crocus. I'm so happy to be here with my co-hosts, Kim Schlag and Marcy Nevin. How are you girls? Hi hey, ladies. Marcy, I almost called you Marcy Curtis because oh, Lord. The that pops up on the Zoom conference. I was like, what? let's that change that, cool shall we? <laughs> so, oh, I'm, did I, was that a dark place? Should I have not gone down that road? Oh, it's early in, in hosting. You know, it, it's not, it's not a dark place uh, for all the listeners. I think they know I was married at one point and Curtis was my former married name. And apparently with Apple products, you can only have one email. So I got my first computer or my first iPhone when I was Marcy Curtis and I cannot change it. So forever, I know when I had to get my new computer a couple of weeks ago, I took it to, I went to the genius bar at the Apple store and I said, is there any way we can change this email? And he's like, nope, you're stuck with it forever. For as progressive as Apple is, you'd think they'd have a way to adjust that for us by now. Right? You would think. (laughs) Yeah, and I've tried to change it in Zoom because I'm on Zoom meetings multiple, multiple times per week. And it's like every meeting that I go to, I have to rechange it. So anyway, thank you for the heads up. Oh, wow. <laughs> you're, you're more than welcome. Happy, happy to help. Marcy Nevin, switching it back right now. There we go. <laughs> I do love hearing what's going on. Uh, and last time we talked, we sort of did some, uh, a little bit more of a deep dive into our own personal health, our, our, our health as women. And Kim, if you're comfortable, I'd love to hear any follow-up you have on what you had shared with us last week about the results from your mammogram. Yes. So I went, it was, um, all is well, but I will say it was a very nerve wracking experience. They did not make it easy on me. I had interesting chats in my DMS as I was discussing this. So I, when I went, um, it's not like I went when you go with your original mammogram and you have like a slip in your hand that says, this is what I'm getting done because it all happened over the phone and it happened really quickly. So they said, we want you to come back in for more images. That's all I knew. And when I got there, no one then talked me through the process. Like I was very nervous and they must know that they call you back. They must know if they don't know that's a problem. But I thought somebody would say like, okay, here's exactly what we're going to do today. And they didn't. Um, you know, I went back, changed into my little robe. She's like, okay, you're going to come in. I'm going to take your images. And then the radiologist is going to see you. I'm like, okay, that's what we're doing today. So we did that. And I was sitting in the the waiting room and the radiologist didn't come get me. Another tech came and got me. And it's like, okay, we're going to go and take, um, uh, ultrasounds. And I'm in the first thing I thought is, okay, they still see something. They saw something bad because they're sending me to this other thing. So, and I don't remember what I said to the ultrasound tech to, to like basically hint at the fact like, wow, I'm really nervous because they sent me for further testing. And she's like, this isn't further testing. This was the plan for today. And I was like, okay, somebody should have said that. Why am I here for my second? Like nobody said. And then she finished with me. And again, said, you know, the radiologist will be kept, not radiologist. What's the person who called who? Is it radiologist? The person who actually reads the doctor who reads the tests. He's going to come in and talk to you next. He doesn't come in. She comes back and she's like, okay. And hands me a piece of paper with a bunch of things on it. And it's like, basically, we don't need you to come back for six months and wanted me to go. And I'm like, Wait a I 
doctor to come in here like right now. Stat, I want to talk to her. Stat. Yes. I was like, you know, I'm really nervous. So I started asking her questions and she was very kind. But I'm like, you're the ultrasound tech. Like, why is a physician not in here updating me? I came in here incredibly nervous. I have yet to see a doctor. And so he did come in and he answered all of my questions. And basically I have dense breast tissue, which I didn't even know like that's a thing. But on my chart that the piece of paper she handed me, there were different things they could have checked. It could have been like fatty breast tissue. And there was like four different options and they check them and basically say, come back in six months. We want to look at this. But the whole time I felt like I was being treated like I knew what was going on because this was daily for them. Like this is just like us hopping on a podcast and like knowing how it all is supposed to flow. I don't know how this is supposed to flow. I'm thinking they're going to tell me any minute I have cancer. Why that is not handled with more sensitivity, I don't know. Um, people came in my DMs and they're like, look, they can't like be reassuring because then you could sue them if they're trying to be reassuring. And then it turns out like, because they were reassuring, you didn't get the proper test. You didn't push or whatever, like you could sue them. And I'm like, okay, they don't have to lie to me, but they could no. be there's very be clear. procedural expectations, certainly. Yeah. Well, if there's any opportunity for you to give, offer feedback, I know when I went through, the treatment of my basal cell carcinoma about a month ago, I had some similar issues where I was like, why is nobody informing me of what's normal, what's to be expected? Um, and that was something that I definitely commented on because yeah, this is, it's a stressful experience and uh -huh. to your point, it's not something that goes on every day. So it's not. And I felt it was a very hush hush and secret and quiet. And it just had this air of doom the whole time. And I was like, I feel like you guys could do a little bit more to help with the patient experience here. So uh, and That's I had that experience, gosh, how long ago? Did, no, 20 something years ago when I was first diagnosed with psoriasis, which is a lifelong autoimmune condition. So I was, I think 21. So I was going into my senior year of college and it was Memorial Day weekend. I had been houseboating and I came home, I was in a sorority, came back to the sorority and like, I was itching everywhere. I was like, what is going on? Did I get poison oak? Am I just really dirty from not taking a shower? <laughs> and I woke up the next day covered in these red splotches. It basically looked like I had poison oak or oh. almost like the chicken pox. And that went on for, I mean, weeks and just kept getting worse and worse. So I went to my health center and like, oh yeah, it's poison oak. No, it wasn't. <laughs> And so finally I scheduled a dermatologist appointment, uh, back in my hometown. And I went to this guy and same thing, Kim, just like no bedside manner whatsoever. So he does a biopsy. And I think when I came back for the results, he's like, yeah, you have psoriasis and it's a lifelong condition. And I said, well, is it going to get worse? He's like, well, I don't know. We have no way of knowing that. And he was just such a jerk about it. And here I am this 21 year old girl who already is, I guess, self-conscious about appearance and all of those things. And I'm covered from head to toe in these red blotches. And I know that he cannot tell me what is going to happen. Like he doesn't know that he doesn't have a crystal ball, but again, just so unempathetic and cold. And here I am sitting in this sterile medical office room, you know, the lights blazing and just so upset. And he was a complete jerk about it. So yes, I think that Medical practitioners, I mean, they, they're wonderful. They do their best. One of my favorite quotes is like, you can't read the label when you're inside the jar. Mm -hmm. And sometimes like, you're just so in your own day to day. And like, this is very routine for them. I know you said that in your stories, Kim, 
that it's just what they do. And I think that they also have to have a little bit of a, a barrier um, mm. to protect their own, you know, emotions, right? Yeah, I'm sure. Uh, yeah. But somehow it needs to translate, even if it's the bare minimum of like, they could have had anybody say like, here is exactly what is going to happen today. Here are the two tests you're going to get. That would have gone a long way to help me feel like, okay, this is like, this is the, this is the plan, you know, not like, wow, something is terribly wrong. So mm -hmm. yeah, I will definitely be looking for a way to give feedback. I, I did get like two weeks ago when I had uh, my first mammogram. No, it wasn't. That was my, just my checkup. I got a little like survey. So I'm hoping I get a survey from this one. Cause I'll have some things to say. Understand, yes, yes. Well. understanding the expectation is so so important agreed yeah uh, i think that's true with everything in life right uh, anything we handle that's going to be challenging difficult upsetting if we can at least understand the expectations mm -hmm. it just goes better mm -hmm. 100%. well i mean i'm gonna i'm gonna dive into our, our topic of conversation today because i feel like that's kind of a, a good segue because um you know <laughs> having an, a good understanding of things that are really impactful in our lives is so important. And the topic that we were going to talk about today is metabolism myths. And I know the reason we wanted to talk about this subject was because certainly this word, this idea, this thing in our body gets a lot of, of airtime. Um, and, and for the amount of time it's discussed, I think it should be understood. Um, there are a lot of things about the metabolism that I think are misunderstood. And so I kind of want to just like, so I'm going to throw down a definition and let me know, ladies, if you agree with me or not. Um, in its simplest form, I really think the metabolism is just the process by which our bodies convert food into energy, like at its most basic form. It's adaptive, it's fluid, it's static, and its only job really is to keep us alive. Like it's not there to make us look pretty. It's not there to um, build muscle. It's there to keep us alive. And that is its core job. Um, and unfortunately we can't just like always download an upgrade to our body and be like, Oh, food isn't scarce. Like we can eat whatever we want. And it's going to just fluidly bounce back like a rubber band after a period of overeating. And I just think that understanding that, um, it has one job and that is the court sort of keep us alive is the beginning of really sort of understanding this like mythical thing that is our metabolism. So I'm going to jump over to you, Marcy. What, what is something that about the metabolism, maybe you want to weigh on, in, on my definition or just dive right in with a myth that, that you think is important that we discuss. Well, excuse me, I will go off of what you said that basically the metabolism is the way that we break down food into energy. So let's talk about food. And I know that one of the myths that I believed when I was first getting started, thanks to all the fitness magazines that told me I should be eating five to six small meals per day to stoke my metabolism. <laughs> that is one of the biggest myths. So I did that for years thinking the more times I ate, the more calories that I would burn. And the flawed logic with that, that most people don't understand is it's not necessarily about how many times per day you eat. It's about the overall quantity in which you eat at that meal. So the more calories you burn per meal, or excuse me, the more calories you consume per meal, the more calories you are going to burn from that meal. So if you're eating these teeny tiny meals five to six times per day that are maybe 300 calories, okay, the thermic effect of food, which is how many calories it takes to digest that food is around like five to 10%, we'll say. So if it's a 300 calorie meal, 10%, that's 30 calories. 
right? Um, but if you were to eat three times per day and each of those meals is 600 calories, well, now you're going to be burning 60 calories per meal. So 30 times six, if you're eating six small meals is 180, 60 times three, if you're eating three meals is, oh, 180, mm -hmm. it's the same thing. So <laughs> that's really a, in its simplest form the the myth that needs to be busted because i don't see it quite so much anymore um but again i don't really follow all of these fitness accounts that are still preaching that type of information um mm -hmm. but i know that i fell for it for a very long time and made my life so much harder than it needed to be because i was you know meal prepping every day and carrying around my food in little tupperware containers and eating on a clock be like oh excuse me it's two o'clock i have to eat i literally had a friend i'm still friends with her uh, she's not listening to this, but she would, she would actually like stop me in the middle of conversation. If we were out together and say, oh, sorry, I have to go. I have to go home and eat. Oh, <laughs> and was she a bodybuilder? Yeah, like, That's like very bodybuilder mentality. I think it's not current, not today. It's it, no, it's very bodybuilder. She, I mean, she dabbled in fitness competitions. She did, I think only one, but she still had that mentality for sure. And this was years ago when we were both still wrapped up in it. I probably was a little bit too. I wasn't going to, you know, leave, <laughs> leave her to go eat my food, but yeah. Yeah. That's a good one. I don't know. What, what do you think, Kim? That is definitely a good one. It's a big one. Another big one is that there is some kind of product, some kind of supplement, herb, spice, um, special workout protocol that is metabolism boosting that you can get a metabolism boost by buying some kind of something and putting it in your body. And that is just not the case. Uh, there's nothing you're going to buy that is going to boost your metabolism. And yes, I know the jar says it. I know it. I know the advertisement says it. They're lying. <laughs> like they are, they are taking words and making them sound really good to you. There's nothing you can buy that's going to boost your metabolism. Yeah, that's criminal. That one really, really irks me. And what bothers me more is when I see lists of things like metabolism burning foods. Mm -hmm. So, because to me, this one is more frustrating because it's like, okay, this, we're, we're taught to eat whole foods and, and to eat less processed foods and to stay closer to nature, which to be clear is definitely going to benefit your body and support your metabolism, but it is not going to suddenly turn the dial because you ate, you know, flax seeds and chili peppers, mm -hmm. you know, alongside your meal. That is not the golden ticket. So I, I agree. I, I hate when there is like a magic pill idea um, attached to a certain thing that you can consume. It really is a red flag. If anybody is trying to tell you that a certain food um, is going to do X for your metabolism, like it's just, there's no such thing as a superfood. There are plenty of healthy foods and you should be eating a variety of them. Um, we should be looking for nutrient dense foods, but there is no food singularly that you have to eat. There's just not, it doesn't exist. Can we jump while we're sort of talking about food? One of the myths that I've heard, not near, near recent, but in the last couple of years is about um, the, the ketogenic diet and how carbs will take you out of a fat burning zone. And, and the reason keto works is that your high fat and your metabolism has been bumped up as a result of this shift in macronutrients. Have you ladies heard this at all too with keto? Yeah, and what people get confused is the idea of um, 
you know, if we're burning fat for fuel or if we're burning body fat. So there's dietary fat and there's fat on our body. And the only way to lose fat off of your body, like if you have, like, if you're looking at your body right now and there's some fat there and you want to lose that fat, the only way to do that is to eat in a calorie deficit. Now, if you are eating more fat because you are in a ketogenic diet, right? You're eating a ketogenic diet, you're not eating carbs. The macronutrient you're going to be burning is going to be fat because that's literally what you're eating, okay? You're not eating carbs, but that's not the same as burning fat from your body. And that I know that can get confusing. I don't know why we decided that we have to call both of those things the same word. <laughs> I don't know, right? It's very confusing. So there's dietary fat and there's fat on your body. Just because you're eating keto does not mean, and studies have borne this out, you do not lose fat better, faster, more efficiently on a ketogenic diet than you do on a, you know, a, a diet that has carbs, as long as total calories and protein are controlled for it. That's just not the case. Um, and so whenever anybody's talking about like a fat burning zone or a fat burning, um, you know, if you're eating keto, it's that you gotta, can, you gotta remind yourself total calories at the end of the day, that's what counts. Mm -hmm. And even fat burning zone. So if you are burning predominantly fat from a workout, the, during that workout, then the rest of the day, you're actually burning more carbohydrates, yes. which is a little mm -hmm. counterintuitive as well. So yeah. yes, calorie and deficit is king. You brought up too, Marcy, earlier, the thermic effect of food, which is a small, but not completely meaningless factor in our metabolism and our, in our total metabolic rate. Um, and, and I think there's a lot of literature now that supports the fact that burning carbs versus fat is largely equal when it comes to the thermic effect of food or how much it costs your body to process the food and turn it into energy. And when you're consuming protein, there is actually, it's a metabolically more expensive macronutrient for yourself, which is one of the reasons, certainly in, in a deficit, um, prioritizing protein is, is helpful. There's a multitude of reasons, but there is, there is evidence and it is science that um, prioritizing protein can help with overall, how much, how many calories your body burns processing the food. Whereas with carbs and fat, it's, it's pretty minor, it's pretty insignificant. And so to kind of get stuck in the weeds about, oh, my fat's too high or my, I, I, I'm going to be keto or not keto. Really, you could, you can lose fat, you can burn energy, you can build muscle either way, as long as your protein is, is out there. So if we're talking about superfoods and foods that boost your metabolism, I mean, I guess protein does boost your metabolism slightly. You know, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, because yeah, the high, the, the thermic effect is going to be higher. It's not hugely significant, but any little bit helps. So protein, definitely the most important macronutrient when it comes to one, preserving your muscle mass. If you are in a calorie deficit, helping you build muscle, whether, and you can still build muscle in a calorie deficit, depending on who you are, um, or in the other phases of your journey. But yeah, fat loss is the goal. It's like, we want to give you every advantage possible mm -hmm. and protein is going to be very helpful with that so that you're not having to do anything else crazy. You don't have to add in more exercise, 
drop your calories even further. It's like, that is the one simple thing that you can do to help yourself out. It's definitely an insurance policy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a great place. Yeah, to I agree. If I was going to call one food, a fat burning, uh, you know, like a fat burning booster, mm-hmm. I would, I would put it on protein. And for me, the way I kind of talk about this with my clients is the idea of it's not the main reason I'm pushing you to eat protein. I want you to eat protein so that you, you know, spare your muscle in your deficit. So you stay full in your deficit, right. but it sure is a nice added bonus, right? right. That it's actually going to take more calories to digest it as a great added bonus. Mm-hmm. So Mars, do you have another one, another metabolism myth to throw down for us? Oh gosh. Um, I don't know if I do. I mean, Kim, if you've got one on the tip of your tongue, yeah, I've got, another, I've got another one. The idea that after menopause, your metabolism comes to a crashing halt. Oh, that's a good one. <laughs> Talk about this one. That is such a big one. And here's the reality. There is some slowing. It is not as large as women think it is. And there's so much you can do to mitigate it because a lot of that slowing of your metabolism has to do with two factors. One is the fact that we are losing muscle if we're not actively trying to preserve it. So women who have not been doing dedicated strength training with progressive overload and eating enough protein have already been losing muscle since they turned 30, right? We lose three to 8% of our muscle mass per decade if we're not actively preventing it. So now you've lost muscle mass that has to do with, that is a piece of the slowing of our metabolism. And then the other part is you're not moving as much as you think you are. You're not moving as much as you once were. You're not the little kid on the playground anymore. You're not, you know, playing after school sports. You're not running across the college campus or chasing toddlers. You're doing a lot of what the three of us are doing right now, which is sitting on your butt at your desk. So you're not moving as much. And those two factors are massive. And there's something you can do about both of them. Actively work to build muscle, eat enough protein, and get up and move, move a lot throughout your day, go for walks throughout your day, pace your house. All of that is going to do a huge amount, um, to help recover this, you know, slowing metabolism. Is it going to make up for all of it? No, you will likely need a sm- there will likely still be a smaller reduction in your metabolism. It is not big ladies. You do not need to be eating 1200 calories to lose weight, even in menopause. Mm. That's I, I love that. That's great. I, I think it is so important to, um, to differentiate or, or to, to make the point that, um, you can't, don't blame your metabolism for weight gain when your lifestyle shifts. And that can happen before or after menopause, really. Yes. I think for a lot of people too, even who just, when I graduated college and I was on campus walking all over, I went to Penn state and that's an enormous campus to get from one end to the other, or to get from where I lived to where classes were, was like a 40 minute walk. And so I don't know, I wasn't wearing a step tracker then, but I was probably in the neighborhood of 25,000 steps a day cut to my first job where I was in sales and sitting in a vehicle all day. And um, I, I mean, I think I gained 15, I, I gained the, the 15 pounds I should have gained in college. Just <laughs> my lifestyle shifted. So yeah, your freshman 15 with your first job. Uh, I was the same way. I, I joke that I lost the freshman 15 when I went to college because my nutrition was on point. Mm-hmm. I wasn't overeating. I wasn't drinking in excess, but my activity went through the roof. Same thing as you, Katie. I would love to know what my steps were back in those days. I know, right? <laughs> oh, yeah. So I, I'm so glad you addressed that one, Kim, because I appreciate that. I don't want people to think that like aging is a death sentence when it comes mm-hmm. to fitness goals and, and, and muscle. Can we talk about uh, this concept of starvation mode where you simply stop losing weight because you're eating too little? Have you heard that out and about Oh, yes. Before? It drives me. It makes me want to ram my head into a wall. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 
And I get it. Like people, when they talk about it, they make it sound really, cause it, it gets very confusing in our brains. Um, but you know, there have been studies that have shown this, the Minnesota starvation ex experiment yes. is a huge one. Mm -hmm. I mean, they took those men and you guys can look it up ladies. If you're, if you're listening, if you're interested in reading about the study, it's fascinating to read what happened, but this was during world war two, I believe, right. I think it's during world war two and they, this would never, they would never be able to run an experiment like this today. But these men who didn't want to go into the service volunteered to come and do this starvation experiment instead. And what they were looking to do was to see like how best to help starving people in Europe. Europe after the war. And so they starved these men and they were eating such low calories and walking an incredible amount. And when you see the pictures, they are skin and bones. Like mm -hmm. they kept losing weight. There was no amount that they ate so little that they stopped losing weight. And there certainly wasn't some amount that they started gaining weight. And that's what a lot of people today, when they refer to starvation mode, they're like, I'm eating so little and that's why I'm gaining weight. And that's realistically not, it's not happening. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, that, that is kind of a myth is that, and I will quote Dr. J Tita here. He is a mentor of mine. He is an expert in metabolism. And what he will say is the metabolism is not a calculator. It's a thermostat. So it is always adapting to your environment. So if you are eating fewer calories, then your metabolism is going to adapt down to the amount of calories that you are eating. So all of these people who have been eating 1200 calories for months, years, even on end, now their metabolism is down regulating because it's a survival mechanism. You know, our bodies want to survive. Unfortunately, ladies out there, especially because we are the species that reproduces, like our bodies do not want to be uber lean. Um, because that is I not would submit that most people who think they're doing that though, Mars aren't doing it. Most people who mean? think they're eating 1200 calories are not eating 1200 calories. Well, I mean, yes, but I think that there are some people like I know for myself, I restricted to 1200 calories for a very long time. And I, I probably was eating that many, but so I think, you know, a handful, but at one, at some point you can't continue eating that amount. And so they are probably overeating, you know, they're, they may be binging things like that. And now they are over, well, now their metabolism is down regulated possibly to that 1200 calories. Um, and because they are eating in excess, trying to adhere to a low calorie diet, then now they are kind of like in maintenance or in a surplus, so to speak. Yeah. And I think that's where a lot of it comes into play that they restrict, restrict, and they do have these binging episodes. I think that's, that's a reality of what happens. And, you know, metabolic adaptation is real. You know, mm -hmm. if you lose a lot of weight, yes, your metabolism is going to slow because there's not as much of you anymore. Right. Mm -hmm. So and can you, know, you explain metabolic adaptation in a little more detail? Yeah. It's basically the idea that like, as you get smaller, because you're losing weight, your metabolism goes down because you, you're smaller, but, um, what can happen is that it downregulates more than would be expected. And they saw this with like those biggest loser studies, right? That people, right. that they lost so much weight. They, and a lot of that is due to the fact that they lost so much muscle. Um, you know, that was one of the big factors in there. They didn't just, you know, they were not controlling for that, which is what we try to have you ladies do is to keep as much muscle mass on as possible by strength training and, and eating enough protein. And they weren't doing that. And so they lost so much. And so you can lose enough that now you have your metabolism is slower than can just be accounted for your new smaller size. I think to, okay. to, 
jump off um, the Minnesota starvation study that you talked about. That's exactly why those men survived. I, I think they were down as low as like 600 calories a day at some point, or even if you shift to something a little bit more timely, like, you know, you see a, a prisoner of war come home um, and they can survive on such little food um, because that is what our metabolisms are designed to do for us. That is, that is their gift to our bodies. We can go through extreme periods of famine and survive. So when you are somebody who is eating 1200 or whatever that low, low number is for your for your body type, when you are that person, your body is going to become a hybrid and say, okay, I can do more with less. I'm going to do the things that it's going to require for me to survive on as few calories as you're going to give me, watch me. And mm -hmm. that is when downregulation comes in other areas in our bodies as well. And a lot of times things like um, some, you know, autoimmune diseases presented at times like that. Not that and correlation does not equal causation, certainly, but you'll notice that, you know, you're very, very tired or maybe you're not moving as much in your workouts. I personally had an experience where I was feeling very strong. I was feeling body recomposition. And then I dropped about 300 calories a day thinking I wanted to kind of ride that tide. And all of my um, fat loss stopped because my body downregulated my movement, my, my neat, my non-exercise activity thermogenesis, which is basically just movement, came to a screeching halt. And to that end, I basically started, uh, I just reduced my maintenance by 300 calories a day as a result of metabolic adaptation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it, It's funny too, because sometimes it's the involuntary processes that our body does that also downregulate. I don't remember who it was, but I was listening to somebody talking about the metabolism and being in a very steep caloric deficit because they were getting ready for some sort of bodybuilding show. And this is per a person who does video for his business. And he said, you could see the difference in my videos from when I was in contest prep to when I was not, I was blinking less. Yes. <laughs> like that is a, that is a way But mm -hmm. every little uh, movement counts. And there are some people who are the same size and the same weight but their metabolisms are very different because one person is way more active. The other person is not. And it can just be a, ma a matter of fidgeting or blinking, like all of those little movements, they, they add up. And if you are in a deficit and you've been in one for a very long time, all of those processes are going to get downregulated. And yeah, you're simply just moving more once your body can conserve energy, but also because you're tired and you don't want to move. Mm -hmm. Um, but it's kind of like a double-edged sword. Yeah. Any of anything else you ladies have on your list for metabolism myths we were seeing out there? So let's see. I think I got the big ones. Um, yeah, I talked about menopause, starvation mode, speeding up your metabolism with supplements. I think those are the big ones I had. Yeah, I think that's it. Okay, so let's shift gears a little bit since we sort of just spoke about metabolic adaptation and, and like why things downregulate. What are some ways that because we know the metabolism is static and it or is not static, it is flexible. Um, what are some ways we can sort of help ourselves out of a place where maybe we found to be just too low for comfort? Maybe that's because we've gone extreme on, um, on, on cardio and low on calories and suddenly we're just in this uh, in this cycle where we can't seem to get out of it. And Kim, I'd love to hear you talk about this first, because right now I know you're doing a lot of extra movement and cardio in your training. Mm -hmm. And so I'd love to know, like, how are you kind of offsetting the fact that you are managing your nutrition, you are um, do getting a lot of extra steps and a lot of extra movement, and you certainly don't want to sacrifice muscle at the same time. 
Yeah, I the other day I randomly got 30,000 steps and I was like, never, I don't know if I've ever clocked that many steps, but it was not intentional. My my hiking partner, I think, lied to me about how long our hike was. And like once you're there, like you're there, and I really had stuff to do anyway. And I was like, wait, how long is it gonna be? I thought it was eight, then it was eight point eight, and before we know it, it was like eleven. And so it was that was and I still had to come home and like walk my dog. So um, but my coach and I are very well aware of my movement. And I told him, I said, you know, I'm going to be starting adding in a long hiking day. I'm going to start adding in these, um, these up and down the bleacher days. What do you think? And so we basically, you know, have adjusted my calories for that. I'm trying to be in a deficit and I do want to be in a fairly aggressive one at this point, but we're just keeping a tight watch on how is my hunger? Like, how is my energy level? If all of a sudden I'm like ravenously hungry and moody, and I just want to sleep all the time, that's going to be a sign that we've taken it too far. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I'm in, I'm in constant contact with him about those things so far. I'm feeling really good. Um, but I am making sure to fuel myself appropriately. And I think that's really important ladies when we set your calories. So when you are setting your calories, you've got to take into account your training. And if you are a person who is like, like I'm doing, like doing a lot of dedicated training for a certain event, like you've got to take that into consideration. You can't, don't consider yourself like mildly active, right? <laughs> if you're doing the kind of things that I'm doing. So support your training with your, with your food. Um, and then as far as specifically ways to help, you know, if we're talking about like, you know, there's all that nonsense, like boost your metabolism stuff, or we want to talk about real ways to boost your metabolism. We've already hit on protein as one. Um, mm -hmm. Another is to build muscle. I think it's probably been overstated how much, you know, how many more calories muscle burns at rest than, you know, body fat does. But when you're exercising, like the cost of like building muscle to your body is pretty high. And so build more muscle. And as you're training in the gym, your body is going to need more energy to constantly repair that muscle. So I think strength training is one of the biggest metabolism boosters out there. If that's what people are looking for. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I'll piggyback off that because like you said, Kim, it has been overstated a little bit that muscle burns significantly more calories than body fat. It's not as high as you think, but again, like we were talking about with the thermic effect of food and protein, every little bit helps. But I think a lot of people believe that because they're burning a high amount of calories through their cardio, that that is going to somehow offset how much they are eating, which is not true. And the other thing to consider is, yes, you may be burning 300 calories in a 30 minute cardio session, but the, he the second that you step off that treadmill or that step mill, calorie burning stops. Whereas when you are weightlifting, there is, they call it like the afterburn effect. So something called excess post oxygen consumption is a very expensive process. So it is, you know, the energy required for your body to kind of come back down to homeostasis after a strength training workout. And that is going to burn more calories than if you were just uh, doing cardio and stopping the cardio. You know, the, there's no longer an extra calorie burn that comes from that as it is with weight training. You explain that the epoch effect, I've heard it called so beautifully, Marcy. And that's something that I think a lot of group fitness courses or classes talk about. They tout the fat, this epoch idea that, oh, you'll continue burning calories for another 24 hours after this fundamentally cardio with weights workout we just put you through. And they're, they're saying that it's happening because of the, the strength training and because of the hit. But I think it's important to make sure people understand that the epoch effect comes from serious strength training 
or serious hit. It does not come from cardio with weight. So you really mm -hmm. do, if, if, if you, to get the effects of this, you really need to work your body in short periods, recover, work your body in short periods to recover. And unfortunately, I think a lot of people are not doing what they, what actually is required of them in order to achieve that afterburn. And that's kind mm -hmm. of sobering and, and something to keep in mind too, where, oh, I'm gonna go to this orange theory class because I'm gonna burn a hundred calories, you know, in the after and really like to your point, you jump off that treadmill and, and you're done burning calories from that workout. Well, and also your body adapts to the amount of calories that you're burning. So let's say that you start running. Oh, I want to run to lose weight. And you go right. for a 30 minute jog and you burn 300 calories. Well, in a month, you're doing the same 30 minute jog. And now because your body is adapting, it wants to keep you safe. It is now going to downregulate how many calories you're burning in that session to possibly 200. So now the problem is, you know, with cardio, now you have to go longer. Yeah. To, to achieve the same result or do more days and who, has, who has time for that so let's be let's be efficient here and efficient i don't mean efficient by uh the body is efficient by down regulating the amount of calories it burns so similar to like a prius it's the the analogy the prius to the suburban so a prius is very efficient and that is not a good thing when it comes to fat loss you want to be inefficient like the suburban and being inefficient you do that by building muscle and lifting weights not by doing cardio smarter not harder what did you want to say kim oh what did i want to say <laughs> sorry kim oh no i know what i was gonna say i know what i was gonna say you know what for people out there listening like look paying attention to like okay like epoch should i pay attention to that it's really like paying attention to the smudge on the wall when the house mm -hmm. is on fire. Like mm -hmm. if you're struggling to lose weight, that's not what you should be thinking about. Like, and I don't even want you thinking about like how many calories is this workout burning at all? Like I don't even want your thoughts to go there. I want your thoughts to go to how do I get my nutrition under control? That's where you really need to be focusing on for weight loss um, for sure. And then if we're going to talk about your workouts, really focusing on building muscle and keeping your movement up, keeping your need up throughout the day, which is the other metabolism booster out there, ladies. I mean, yeah. moving more throughout the day, that's the, that's the other big one. Um, it doesn't mean just in the workouts, but throughout your day, if, and I'm not saying you have to live and die by your step tracker, but if you've never stopped tracks, track <laughs> steps, get a step tracker and let's figure out how much you're moving and look for ways to increase that, um, and keep it up like permanently like that as a lifestyle change. I think mm -hmm. it's so important to keep in mind that what you're doing outside of that one hour in the gym every day is so much more valuable than what you're doing for that one dedicated hour in the gym. Certainly strength resistance training, I don't want to take anything away from that, but the other 23 hours of the day matter a whole lot more. Are you getting enough sleep? Are you getting adequate water? Are you taking breaks to stand up and move your body maybe as much as once an hour and not to do anything extreme, but even just Gosh, if you are, if you have a very sedentary job, even if you can just go do 10 squats every time you use the bathroom, that's the type of thing that really can get Even just walk back and forth to the bathroom 10 times. Exactly. <laughs> you don't even have to squat. For me, it is 10 times. Exactly. Yeah, it's important. And I think people dismiss those kinds of things because they feel too small. Mm -hmm. And in reality, they're really huge dial movers. Um, yeah. And it's not a huge dial mover if you do it once it's a huge dial mover. If this is a lifestyle change in every day, like you're paying attention to how much have I moved? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Which is why I think these, these 30 day boost your metabolism programs or, you know, get summer shreds or whatever are, are ridiculous because it's all about lifestyle. And there's no one thing. If you, if you can get hit all your goals in 30 days, 
I'd love to see if you can keep your goals for more than 30 days. Mm -hmm. Like it has Mm -hmm. to be lifestyle long term. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I'm with you. Anything else, ladies, that we want to to talk about? Any closing tips or anything else before we wrap up? Well, do we want to talk slightly or briefly about the reverse dieting process and what you need to do to come out of a deficit because your metabolism will be downregulated? Katie, you're really good about this stuff. You talk about it a lot on your page. I know, I mean, you and I have both been through the process multiple times. So I'm sure Kim, you'll be doing it to an extent after your deficit as well. So Katie, why don't you touch on that? So the reverse diet by nature is taking up your, the first place to start, by the way, is to make sure that you you find out how much you're currently eating. Because I think that is, we'd be remiss if we didn't mention that there, you need to go through a period of understanding where you are currently. And are you, are you currently losing? Are you currently maintaining? What are those calories? Are they consistent? Once you have an idea of where you are, and I would say, I would say two solid weeks tracking where you are, if you've never done it is going to be hugely beneficial for you because that will tell you exactly what's going on. So let's assume that you are at the bottom of, of a cut or very low in calories because we're talking about reversing. Your next step, you could go one of two directions. You could do um, a recovery diet, which would be sort of like, um, you know, taking a, 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 having a good idea of where you think your maintenance is based on, you can put it in like a, a calculator you can find online. You can take a guess maybe where you, uh, based on where you've been in the past, or you can just kind of jump up by like 300 calories real quick in the form of um, carbs and fat, assuming your protein is adequate and see what it does. And if you, ha- and if you are in a place where um, your biofeedback is just in the tank, that is what I recommend. Go for the recovery diet. You'll get there faster. You'll see the scale fluctuate a little bit bigger sooner, but long-term your body will thank you. If you're someone who has not been in a period of uh, super low calories for a long, long, long time. And you're just like, Hey, I'm done. I'm ready to get out. You kind of have more of the privilege of doing the slow reverse where you can possibly see, and this is sometimes where we see some really cool success stories where there's some um, big body recomposition and changes that take place over the course of adding calories, um, maybe over 12 weeks or so. And this can be really fun, but it's again, somewhat of a privileged place. And if you're someone who's been starving your body for months and months and months, you may not you may not be that person who sees this, but you will have the opportunity to take up your calories every day by about 100. So each week, maybe you add 100 calories per day. So if you're 1,200 this week, you're 1,300 next week, every single day. And then you're 1,400 the following week, every single day. And again, assuming protein is adequate, you wanna take all of those calories up in carbs of fat your preference. If you're training a lot, I like carbs. If you're sedentary, I like making sure you have adequate fat. And uh, that's where the lifestyle stuff comes in, right? Because none of us need, if you're already getting adequate protein, the lifestyle fun stuff comes mostly in the form of carbs and fat, right? So let's work those into our diets. That was really long-winded. No, it wasn't. No, Anything to add on, on the reverse diet process? Because all of that is going to do so much for you. I mean, it's going to certainly start to upregulate your metabolism, but you're also going to start to feel alive again in so many ways. Well, I'll mention one thing because you said that there can be very cool changes that happen to some people, not everyone. So <laughs> Instagram, social media can do a little bit of a disservice for people who go into a reverse diet and think that they're going to, you know, lose weight or lose body fat, whatever the case may be. And oftentimes the people who do see more significant body comp changes during a reverse diet 
I mean, it's because now that they have more food, and this goes back to what we were talking about earlier, they are, they're just moving more. So they're likely creating more of an energy expenditure because they feel better because they're eating more, not necessarily like the reverse diet is this magic thing. And it doesn't happen for everybody. You know, I reverse dieted and I gained 10 pounds. So it's everybody's experience is different. Yeah. Yes. So important to point out. So. Yeah, I think that's pretty much it when it comes to that. Good discussion, ladies. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, this, this, I, I hope that we've sort of squashed some myths and then given some people, some, some of you some opportunities to take advantage of really what you can do to benefit yourself and your metabolism. And uh, we'll get back at it again next week, I guess, right? All right. Yeah, I think that the key takeaways here, everybody, is just eat your protein, yeah. lift weights, and move your body, go for walks, all that. It, three very simple things that you can start doing right now. That's it, Marcy. You nailed it. I, I think you just, your money. <laughs> I love it. There it is. Well, thanks everyone for listening. We'll talk to you next week. Bye. Bye. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Decades of Strength podcast. If you liked this, if it was helpful for you, it would mean the world to us if you left a rating and review wherever you're listening. It really does help our work get in front of more people. Thanks so much for being here with you and we'll see you again next week.